Good morning. Good to see you. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to open the word with you today. I want to welcome you. Um, you folks that are gathered at home, we're, we're so glad that you're, that you're gathering for worship today. You folks that have gathered here in this room, we believe that when God's people gather in the name of Jesus, in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, that any room becomes a sanctuary. And so that's true of this space, and that's true of your homes today. And so we are going to worship Jesus together. We are going to learn from the scriptures. You excited to be here? Anybody? Wow. Okay. Good. Good. Will you open your, your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27 are our passage. Is our passage today. We're going to dive into one of the last parables that Jesus taught before what is called the triumphal entry. We're literally just days away from his crucifixion. And, and this is one of the last parables that he taught to his followers. And so we're going to pay attention to him today. I want to I say a couple things about parables real quick before we, before we dive in. I think this is helpful and necessary. The, the parable that we'll read today is a, is a story that Jesus told, or he told the version of this story a, a number of different times. And, and, and for a number of different reasons, this, the passage that we'll read today will remind you, if you've read Matthew's gospel, it will remind you of the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. And, and this story is certainly similar to that, but it's slightly different. And so what I want to say is that Jesus had like these stories. He's a brilliant storyteller and he had stories kind of in his back pocket that he would just pull out for different reasons and for in different seasons and in different moments, he would pull out these stories and he would teach from them. And so the reason I tell you that is because we, I think that what Luke is doing in his gospel is a little bit different than what Matthew's doing in his. And, and stories kind of work this way. Like I have this story about my son Nash, who one time flushed a Hot Wheels car down the toilet which we had told him to not do. He had done this before and we kept telling him, don't do this. And one time it resulted in both of our toilets backing up for over a week. It cost us over a thousand dollars and we had to have multiple plumbers come in to, to work on this. And sometimes I like to tell that story because I believe in human depravity and the sin nature. And that's true of fathers and sons and everyone else. Sometimes I like to tell that story because it illustrates this idea that sometimes if you have problems or, or issues in your life, you just need to keep digging until you find the root of the issue. See what I mean? Different story, the same story, but for a different purpose. And Jesus does that in his own teachings as well. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say about parables is that when we're studying parables, one of the things that we can do that is kind of not helpful is we can press the details of it so much that we, that we miss what Jesus is actually trying to teach us. And so I love what one of the greatest preachers, his name's Alistair Begg. This is what he has said about parables. He says, they are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Isn't that good? Earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And so if we get so stuck on the earthly elements of the story, we could miss the heavenly meaning that Jesus has for us. The third thing I want to say is that when we're studying a parable, we ought to consider the context. When did Jesus say this? Who did he say it to? Where was he when he said it? And, and we think about these things and it helps us to understand the heavenly meaning that is coming to us in the story. And so to that end, 
I think it's good for us to consider where Jesus is. If you were with us last week, Jesus is, um, he just encountered this man, Zacchaeus, a small man, and he encounters him. And Zacchaeus is a traitor to his country. He's hated in his community, but Jesus sees him. He pursues him. He goes after him and he saves him. And this this amazing story of, of grace and love and transformation. And we know that Jesus has radically impacted Zacchaeus's life because he repents in the most profound way. We're told that he restores fourfold all that he has stolen from people. He says that I'm going to give back fourfold whatever I've taken. And even more than that, whatever is left, I'll give half of it to the poor. And this, this evidence is that Jesus has in fact gotten a hold of his heart and his life. And so it is in the midst of this salvation story, this event, that Jesus tells us this parable. I think we, we could even imagine Jesus telling this story in Zacchaeus' living room or perhaps in in a courtyard in his house, because Jesus says to Zacchaeus, he says, I need to go to your house for dinner tonight. And it's within that event that Jesus teaches this parable to all who will listen. So are you ready to hear it? Okay, somebody said, sure, I like that. (laughs) Luke chapter 19, we'll start in verse 10 and read to 28. Our text is specifically 11 to 27, but we, we want to know where Jesus was and where he's going. This is the word of the Lord. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. As I heard these things, he proceeded to tell the parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and and he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, 
even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. This is the Lord's word. So McMurray's gone this, this weekend and I just like, I can just imagine him making the preaching schedule. You know what I mean? He's got like his Bible in one hand his personal calendar in the other hand. And he's like, when should I be gone? He's like, probably the middle of chapter 19. We'll give that one. We'll give that one to Eric so he can explain what it means when the passage ends with bring my enemies in front of me and slaughter them. (laughs) There's a lot, there's a lot going on. I'm I'm happy to be here. I I don't want to make it sound like I'm really happy to be here. Um, there's a lot of interpretations of this story. It's, it's complex. It's, it's in some ways confusing. It is most certainly one of the hard sayings of Jesus. We don't want to diminish any of that. But I think that this story comes down to two themes. The themes are identity and investment. So here's a headline statement for us as we, as we dive into this passage. I, I think we have it. We can put it on the screen. So this is, this is where we're headed today. What you believe about the identity of King Jesus will be evidenced by how you invest the gift that he's given you. Identity investment. So those are the themes we're going to explore today. And I want to start our time by by talking about the identity of Jesus and what he is invested in. How does he invest so we're wondering, is Jesus, is he likening himself to the nobleman in this story who becomes king? And um, that's, that's the kind of questions that come up when we, re- when we read a parable. And the answer to that is yes and no. So 100% of the commentaries that I read, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, 100% of the commentaries that I read about this passage likened this, this parable to the historical and real life of Archelaus. Of course, you knew that, right? No, I didn't know that. So we're, we're learning together. Archelaus was, um, was a ruler of the day. And so what happened was Israel had been occupied by Rome, the largest empire in the whole world. And the current, em- the current emperor of the empire of Rome was Caesar Augustus. And so the empire was so massive, it was so big that the emperor would, um, would raise up various kings to rule over the countries and the provinces that, that made up the empire. And so one of those kings was a man named Herod. And we've heard of him. Even at the beginning of the story of the gospel, Herod is, is the king of Judea, the, the land that, that Jesus is, is in. And, and Herod's the king and he dies. And then he gives... He divides his kingdom amongst his three sons. One of those sons was Archelaus. And Archelaus was incredibly unpopular. And for good reason. He was hated by many. And so what happened was Archelaus was given the kingdom. But what he had to do was he had to go to Rome to receive the ruling authority from the emperor. So Herod had given him kind of the keys to the kingdom, but he had to go to the the emperor himself 
to be inaugurated as king, to be appointed as king. And so what happened, and this happened in, in history, he, as he went to Rome to be appointed king, there was a delegation of Jewish citizens that followed him in protest. And they pleaded with the emperor, don't let this be our king. And everybody who heard the story could imagine that. And now even us, as for, just, for just a brief moment, us as Americans, we can imagine, because we've lived through the last two election cycles, that an official is elected and then there's, there's an uprising against that. I'm not trying to be snarky, I'm just trying to get us into the moment so we can resonate with what's happening. We understand that the, the transfer of power is shaky. It's volatile. And so Jesus draws on this story and he, and he draws his, his, these people in because he, he's talking about the transfer of power and they would have resonated with it. So what happened to Archelaus was actually that he, um, while he was offered a kingship by his father, the emperor gave him a lesser, a lesser kingship, more, what's called an ethnarchy. So he, so he had kind of just an honorary title, but it wasn't an actual king. And this was because of this uprising that came when he was to be appointed. And so Jesus tells this story to people who would, they would have resonated with this because this was just a few decades before the moment that they were in as he tells this story. So he hooks his listener with this, like you remember that story about a king who went away to get the keys to his kingdom and the uprising that came in the midst of that. So that brings us into this, this question of the identity of Jesus. What is the identity of Jesus? The truth is, is that he's the true king. Just a few short verses before the passage that we look at today, a blind man was able to identify Jesus and he identifies him as the son of David, which would have meant it would have been a declaration that Jesus was in fact the messianic king that had been prophesied through the entirety of the scriptures. That's who Jesus is. He's the savior king. And what does he come to do? Where did we start? He came to seek and to save the lost. But we're told that there's, that's the identity of Jesus. But in verse 11, we actually find out why Jesus is telling us this parable. I don't know if you noticed that. It says in verse 13, it is as, as this announcement of who Jesus is and, and what he came to do is, is that is made, it says he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus is the king and, and with that announcement that he was the king would come certain expectations of the king. What kind of king is Jesus? Is he the kind of king that would, that would lay hold of his crown? Where are they headed? They're headed to Jerusalem. And within that, there's this expectation that Jesus would overthrow the powers of Rome, that Jesus would, would literally storm the capital and establish himself as the king. This is what was expected of him. This is what, for those who had come to believe in Jesus, they, they imagined that he would do this kind of thing because this is the sort of thing that kings do, is they take over and establish power, but not King Jesus. 
No, in fact, what we know about Jesus is that he will go to Jerusalem and it is there that he'll be rejected. Not just by the Roman authorities, not just by the Jewish religious authorities, but even by his own followers. He'll be abandoned by his disciples. He'll be rejected by everyone. Everyone will say, not my king. And so how does Jesus respond to this rejection? We ought not to to press the details of the parable that we just read. Jesus is not like Archelaus. Archelaus responded to his rejection. At one point, history tells us that he actually slaughtered 3,000 people on the first Passover after he had been elected and put in a position of rulership. And so you can see why he was so hated. And is Jesus comparing himself to him? No. That's not the kind of king that Jesus is. That's not the way that he moves his kingdom forward. What had been imagined of of, of Jesus was that his kingdom would be kind of outwardly, that it would be, that it would be, that it would come through overthrowing the powers, that it would come through establishing himself. But the reality is the kingdom that Jesus was bringing is, it starts inward kind of like the story of Zacchaeus where before he has this outward change in what he's doing, Jesus does an inward work in his heart. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. He is rejected and he responds to his rejection by giving his life for his enemies. Far different than the kings of this world. So that is the identity of Jesus We could say much more about it, but we'll say that for now. But the second thing I want to talk about is investment. In this story, the heartbeat of this story is the theme of investment. The king, we know, is rejected by many. It tells us that early on in the story. Many reject him, but really the heart of the story is the king's investment in people. The story tells us that the king is actually, he calls 10 servants to him. Yes, there's many who say, this is not my king, but he calls 10 of his servants to him. We don't get the reports on all of them. We get the reports of three of the servants that are called to him. And that we know that the king is going to go away for a while and that someday he will return. But in the meantime, the king chooses to invest in people. He calls these servants to him and it says in our passage that every one of them gets one thing. The same amount. They get one mina. Now, a mina was a form of currency. It was the equivalency of of 100 days of work for a laborer. So is that a lot of money? Well, depends on who you ask. But he gives each person the exact same amount. And this is different. So again, if if you've heard of the, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25... Each of the servants gets a different amount of things. But here in in our story, every servant gets the exact same thing. And the question is, is what will they do with it? The king tells them, he says, engage in business until I come back. And so that kind of brings us back into our passage here. I want you to look at verse 15 with me. We're just going to, we're going to read this. The, The king has come back. He's been rejected by some, but he's given this sort of investment 
to his servants and he's come back to, um, to take a look at his portfolio. Did I say that right, finance people? Is that, uh, whatever. Okay, verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now listen to this. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. I don't know a lot about finance, but this is a good investment. Am I right? I mean, the first servant has, is my math right, a thousand percent increase. I don't care who you are. I don't care how much money we're talking about. That's good. And even the second who got the same amount was given the same gift or investment. He comes back with a 500% increase. Now, here's the thing that we, here's the detail of the story that we have to notice. And I think we actually have to press into. I love what each of the servants say to the king. Now, this is super important. It's really interesting. They all say, Lord, Look what your Mina has done. Look at what your gift has done. None of them, none of these first two servants say, I was really great with what you gave me. And I'm really talented. And I'm super engaged. What'd they say? Look what your gift has done. I never noticed that until, and I've read this story many times. I never noticed that until this week. Just this overflow with these servants. They're like, look what you, what, look what you did with you gave me. Now, more on that in a minute. What about the third? The third servant has an entirely different response. And his response, it's, it's, it's actually, it's, this is complex. There are many interpretations of this of this response. Don't email me. I know there's a lot out there. There's a lot that we could say about this, but but I want you to just listen to what the third servant says. Verse 20, then another came. This is the third servant. And listen to what he said. Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. And here's the reason. For I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Is that true of Jesus? No. But it's true of the kings of this world. But the servant is making a statement about the identity of the king. He's saying, I was afraid of you, you were severe. You, you take what you don't deserve. You reap what you do not sow. Now listen to the response of the king. This is important. The king says, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. He says, I'm going to judge you based on what you believe about me. And then what he says next, and it's important that we get this. He, what he says next, he says in the form of a question. He said to him, we are in uh, 
verse 22. He says, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. He's like, that, that's what you think about me? He says this, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. What an interesting response. He says, I'm going to condemn you with your own words. If you really knew that I was a severe man, if you really believed, in, in some sense, if you really believed that I was the king, why not just put this gift, this investment in the bank, in the CD? Like, or so just, you know, even, even putting it in the bank would give like a few percent interest. Not as great as a thousand percent interest or, or five percent or 500%, but, but you could have at least put it in the bank. But the reality is, is this servant did nothing with the gift that he was given, which tells you everything that you need to know about what he believes about the king. He considered the gift to be worthless, and he considered the king to be severe. And so he did nothing, proving that he doesn't know who the king is, or how to invest in the gift. And so the king says, give the investment to the one who will use it. He says, give, give, give the mina to the first servant, because he'll take it and he'll use it for something. And the, and the crowd responds by saying, but he already has 10. And the, and the king says, this gift has to be invested. It has to be put to use. And here's how the story ends. And in, in verse 26, it says, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The, the servant, the third servant proves that he's actually an enemy of this king. He's, he's like the ones who, who protested against the king when, when he was inaugurated as king. They said, this is not my king. And the truth is, is that, that Jesus wants his listener to understand that there are some who will take the gift that he has given and they will invest their lives fully in it, proving that they believe and that they follow the king and that there are some who will take the gift offered and they will do nothing with it. And that is our story today. So here's the question I think that we need to consider as we, as we begin to wrap up. <laughs> what is the mina? What is the gift that is given to these servants? What actually is it? There's different interpretations of what this is. And I think what we can do sometimes is I think we can trivialize what is given here. We can say things like, well, you know, the mina is actually a form of currency. So the point of this story is that the servants ought to invest their money in, in the work of the king. And that is true. Jesus calls people to, to lay aside everything. And in fact, you know, Zacchaeus' response to Jesus is to give away 
his money, but that's not what Jesus means here. We could say that the gift or the mina, the investment is our time. And that's certainly true. Jesus is calling for our time to be invested in him. Um, That's a true principle seen throughout all the gospels, but that's not what he's talking about here. We may think that the mina that is given to all the servants is talent or gifting or resources. And yes, that is true. Jesus has laid claim on every single thing that we have, but that is not the gift that was given. There's something that every single follower of Jesus gets and every single follower of Jesus gets in the same proportion the exact same amount with the exact same assignment. It's not time. It's not money. It's not talent. It's not resources. It's news. It's good news. It's the gospel. Every single follower of Jesus gets that and is called to engage their life in sharing that news. Amen. That's what every single one of us has received. We have received spiritual reality. This announcement that Jesus is the world's true king. And he has come to seek and save the lost. I receive that. I'm not here primarily because I'm a pastor. I'm here because that's what I got. That's what was given to me. That's what was invested in me. I got from Jesus an advance on my inheritance. And it's that reality that Jesus is the world's true king and he has come to seek and save the lost. That's what you got too. So what what do we do with it? How will we use it? How will we engage with that reality? I keep coming back to the servants and the way that they respond to the king. Look what your gift has done. Look what you did through this gift that you gave me. The gospel is the power to save. To some, it looks worthless. You can stick it in a handkerchief and throw it away. But to others, it is the most precious and valuable thing ever. So what do we think of the gift that Jesus has given us? Do we think that that gift is exactly what we need in this moment? I believe that we do. We need the truth of the gospel more than ever. Perhaps even in a week like this, in our own nation, where there's so much uncertainty about what the events of the next few days might bring. Does the gospel speak to that? I believe it does. The gospel is exactly what we need right now, and it calls us to a few things that, that I want to ask you to carry this week The first is this. I think we have a slide for this. Reordered trust. The gospel calls us to reordered trust. We don't know what the events of this week will unfold like. 
we know, I'll just speak specifically, people on all sides of the spectrum, on the right and the left, are afraid of what will happen. And we don't know what will happen. We never know what will happen. But I I actually believe this. This week, there will be more evidence that the kingdoms of this world are shakier than we think. The kingdoms of this world are at risk all the time. And the disciple of Jesus, the servant of Jesus, because they believe in the identity of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus, they actually step into the world in prayer and reflection, saying, Lord, would you increase my trust in your kingdom? Lord, help me to increase my allegiance to your kingdom and in such a way that my, my trust in the kingdoms of this world decrease. There was a brilliant Christian philosopher named Dallas Willard who, who died a few years ago. He was not just a brilliant scholar, but he was, he was actually, he was a man of peace. And everybody who knew him knew this about him. And so there was a, there was a moment where he was asked in an interview, a simple question, Dallas, how do you live with such joy and such ease and such inner peace? And he said this, some of you have heard me say this. Dallas leaned back in his chair and he thought about that question and he answered in this way. The kingdom of God is not at risk. And that reality, which is a gospel reality, created in him an inner sense of peace and trust. And doesn't the world need that? But it can only find it in its true king. So the first thing the gospel does is it, 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 it reorders our trust. The second thing the gospel calls, and this is a hard truth from Jesus, is enemy love. How does, how does Jesus respond to his enemies in Jerusalem? Which, which actually proves to be everyone. How does he respond to them? He dies for them. Here's a, here's a true reality. Christians ought not to view anyone as an enemy. Because we were all enemies of God and Christ, while we were still enemies, laid down his life for us. Extending his hand of reconciliation and redemption. So we don't look to the left and the right and see enemies. We see people who are loved, welcomed by the king. So enemy love is what overflows because of the gospel of Jesus. And doesn't the world need to see that right now? So that's the second thing. And the third thing that the gospel creates in servants and followers of Jesus is patient hope. The truth is in this story, this story is about the, the reality that, that many people thought that the kingdom of God would come immediately and Jesus tells this story to say that actually 
you're not going to see the kingdom in its full reality yet. He says, I am the king. And notice, now, now think about the story. The king goes to receive the kingdom and he says, I'm coming back. And so the gospel calls followers of Jesus to patient hope. The best thing that could happen to our world will happen. Its true king will return. And he will return in, in judgment and mercy. This is, I don't want to soften the sayings of Jesus. He will return to judge the evils of our world. And in the meantime, we get the deposit. And that's the good news about who he is. And the question is, is will we use it? Will we share it? Will we declare it? Will we proclaim it? It's the best thing we have, and everybody got it in the same proportion. So what will you do with it? Will you engage with it in hope? Will you let the truths of the gospel sink so deeply in you that you actually love your enemy? And will it cause you to reorder your trusts, not in the kingdoms of this world, but the one that has come? and is coming. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, for what you have shown us in your word. Oh, and Lord, we pause to remind ourselves that you are the true king. We pause to reflect on that reality. Thank you, Jesus, that you called each one of us. Thank you for the gift that you have given to us. Right now, as, as a worshiping community, we want to respond to that news, the good news, the gospel. that you canceled our debt, that you poured out love on us. While we were your enemies, you loved us, died for us. You gave us a mission, Lord. That mission is to bring your good news to the ends of the earth. A pandemic doesn't change that call on us. Fearful times, it doesn't change that call. It is still the same to take the gift that you've given us, to engage in it, to speak it, to live it. And one day we will say to you, look what you've done. So we love you, Lord. We long for your return. May it be so. Amen.